This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. After a full week of no new COVID-19 cases, we look at how the national bid to eradicate another serious disease from our shores seems to have slipped under the media's radar. And two much-missed women's magazines are back on the shop shelves. Are readers happy? It's just full of... A lot of crap. Um, I will not be buying those magazines anymore. I used to love them, but it is full of Australian rubbish now. Apparently not. But first, this week, the chief executive of the country's biggest news producer, Stuff, pulled off a stunning $1 deal to take the company off the hands of the Aussie owners who didn't want it. She says she wants Stuff staff to take a stake in it under her new management. Sounds like a nice idea, but how might that work? Well, what a turnaround. There is a buyer for stuff. It is clearly not NZME that was fighting to continue exclusive negotiations and was rejected by the courts. It is a management buyout pretty much by the chief executive of stuff, Andrew. It's just extraordinary, isn't it? And I kind of wonder whether we're ever going to have a normal week in media, and clearly that's not the case. That was Nine to Noon's weekly media commentator Andrew Holden last Tuesday, practically pining for a normal week in the media to comment on with host Catherine Ryan. But right now, the new normal for the industry is chaotic and often a bit bleak. The morning before Andrew Holden said that, the staff of the broadcasting company MediaWorks warned that an address to all staff would be made at 10am. And that was a bit ominous. Even before COVID-19 wreaked havoc on the media's finances, that company was in trouble. And since last October, it's been trying to sell off its loss-making TV arm, including its main channel 3 and the News Hub operation. There were real worries that Chief Executive Michael Anderson might actually be about to announce that MediaWorks TV channels could be switched off for good, including the news. But on Monday morning, the news ended up being this at the top of the next hour. MediaWorks is cutting 130 jobs as it deals with the economic fallout from the pandemic. So, not the closure some feared, but that's still a significant slice of the company's workforce. Most of those who remain have had pay cuts, which were agreed to in April, extended through to September as well. And this comes in spite of MediaWorks being one of the big beneficiaries of the government's $50 million package of short-term assistance announced last month. But there was no such help in that package for the nation's news publishers. This is not to prop up failing businesses, the broadcasting minister Chris Farfoy said bluntly at that time. Now, last week here on Media Watch, we heard how the future of New Zealand's biggest news publisher, Stuff, was up in the air, and there were rumours that the Australian company that's ended up owning it might soon close it down as part of its own plan to survive the COVID-19 chaos across the Tasman. Nine Entertainment has tried to sell Stuff for more than a year without success, but while the industry here was digesting the news of the MediaWorks job cuts on Monday, unexpected news about the ownership of Stuff startled everyone. This was in the same 11am RNZ News Bulletin on Monday. The chief executive of Stuff has bought the media company from Australian owners Nine Entertainment for $1. In a statement, Sinead Boucher said she was pleased to bring the business and all its mastheads back to New Zealand ownership. She says the plan is to transition the ownership of Stuff to give staff a direct stake in the business as shareholders. Journalists at the company were quick to express their glee on social media, and those Media Watch spoke to were also pleased and intrigued by the prospect of taking a stake in the company. And they were surprised by that too. Media Watch understands there was no hint of that move to come when there was a meeting between union representatives and stuff management, including the chief executive, last week.
And if stuff were to have to make the same sort of tough redundancy calls that MediaWorks made the same morning, well, who owns the company and how much they might have to pay for redundancies is really a key issue for the staff as well. In one of many interviews after the big reveal of the $1 deal later on Monday, Sinead Boucher was asked on TVNZ's Q&A show just how stuff staff could be turned into shareholders. Um, well, that's something that's still to be worked out. This deal um, has only really been put together over the last couple of weeks and it's been a real rush to sort of get it done. Mm. It was only signed at midnight last night. So now that we have acquired the company, the next step now is I will be speaking to um, people who have already implemented these kind of models in their own companies or have experienced sort of putting this sort of structure in place so that we can, you know, hopefully before too long roll something out where staff can get that, have a stake in our future, um, a direct stake, and, you know, we'll go from there. But I don't know yet exactly how that's going to work or what it'll look like. Well, these days there aren't many models locally that Sinead Boucher could look to to draw advice from on that. One person, though, who does have relevant expertise in the UK is Dave Boyle. Against the backdrop of warnings that long-standing local newspapers and local news gathering there were also staring into the abyss of the COVID-19 crisis, Dave Boyle has produced a plan called Good News, Cooperative Solutions to the Media Crisis, which lays out how news organisations could be owned by the people who make them. It was published last week by the UK's Community Shares Company, which has cooperatised a range of local British businesses and clubs in recent years. This week, Hayden Donnell asked Dave Boyle how Sinead Boucher and her team might just do this at Stuff and what the fishhooks might be in Staff taking a stake in the business. An employee or worker-owned cooperative media outlet looks very similar from the outside to a standard media company you know it produces its publications the people get paid there's generally a hierarchy the big difference is that at the end of the year when the profit gets to be distributed instead of that given to the external investors it's given to the people whose work has actually generated that uh, profit in the first place they tend to be more resilient because when they have uh, the ups and downs of the economic cycle affecting them, instead of it being kind of like a diktat, so most, you know, somebody comes down from, from head office with the bad news about who's going to get fired and who's going to stick around, everybody can be part of a conversation. And they might, generally what they tend to do is say, well, we'll all take a pay cut to get us over this hump. So the, the business retains its staff, retains its know-how, and is more resilient. And secondly, because everybody can see that the people who will benefit from them being better at their jobs, working harder, are themselves. Okay, so Stuff is our biggest news producer, and its new owner, its former CEO, Sinead Boucher, has just said that she wants to give workers a stake in the company. How would she actually go about doing it? There's all sorts of issues to be fleshed out, things like can people sell their shares? Is there an internal market of shares or are they bought back by the business? Because somebody might come in and and work very hard and then want to leave. Some worker-owned businesses will say if you want to become part of the ownership, you've got to make a down payment and pay in to the to the share capital of, of the business. And one of the ways in which many companies get around it is using what are called employee benefit trusts. So the shares are kind of held in the name of the employees, but not 
individually by each employee. So when it gets to the year end and the profits get distributed, they get distributed to the Employee Benefit Trust, who then distributes them to the workers. There are lots of examples of all these different types of structures. And if the willingness is there from the new owner uh, who knows the business and knows the staff, absolutely no reason why they can't come up with a really nice solution which really works for this particular business. Because I think there is some worry from like staff's employees, for instance, that they will be asked to take a pay reduction in exchange for, say, a share offering. So essentially your shares are taken off your pay. Is that, is that a concern that, that, that is justified and is that something that could happen? One of the big factors governing anything is about what's the financial situation of the business. Now, I know that the, the price paid for the business as a whole was, was pretty low. I think it was $1, which suggests that there are some liabilities to be worked through. If there are some sacrifices to be made, and it's better to have that as part of a conversation with the employees, the critical thing which is governing this is that if there are concerns, this needs to be worked through with them. That's the absolute critical thing, because if you squander that goodwill, then you can have all the employee ownership in the world. But if people basically feel it's a bit of a con, then you'll never get those benefits of extra productivity, extra creativity and more resilience. What are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the mistakes that can be made? Is it just that lack of communication? Yeah, the main thing is that it's seen as tokenistic. Um, it's seen as a kind of uh, a way in which the, the the senior people within the company sort of look like they're being really ethical and progressive and inclusive when actually they're giving away very little power and very little money. Is this a genuine sort of light bulb moment where people have realised that actually the benefits of this extra productivity and so on is something which is actually going to transform the business and make it stronger and healthier? Or is it something which is kind of mood music to make it look like, you know, the, the new boss isn't the same as the old boss, but actually really is the same as the old boss, but has just got a better line in, in making people think that they're radically different. But it's not a very common model, especially here in New Zealand. I'm just wondering, what are some cooperatively run companies, media companies in particular, around the world? There's a, a, a wonderful newspaper in the Scottish Highlands called the West Highland Free Press and it's the main newspaper serving an enormous sort of area in the north of Scotland. If it was part of a major media group, it would have long ago ceased to exist because it's just too difficult to get the newspaper to all these communities where they don't have any shops and, and, and so on and so forth. And the only way in which this business is viable is because the, the employees are, are the people who own it. I mean, you're talking about a really locally involved, high reader trust business, but does it scale to an organisation like Say Stuff, where it is a national organisation with multiple properties and it doesn't have that same connection to a community? The company who make Wallace and Gromit have just transitioned to employee ownership, Ardman Animations, the company which do a veg box scheme, which is popular across the UK, where um, that's been privately owned and it's become employee owned because the, the owners recognise that the thing what makes the business thrive is its connection with its values. It, you know, people trust that it it's not going to use pesticides. It's not going to uh, cut corners with its production. And the people who are going to, who share that vision and will keep it alive are the employees rather than some uh, venture capitalists who would be looking to you know who would see a, a, an opportunity for a quick book. It does scale, and you know the biggest worker-owned company in the world is the Mondragon Cooperative Corporation um, in Spain, which has a hundred thousand 
thousand workers from everything from supermarkets to um, high-end bikes, you know, racing bikes and white goods, fridges, freezers, you name it. And they're across all of it. And each one of these businesses is run as a workers and employee-owned company, and it and it's very successful. The main problem we've got is that it's generally not the way in which most companies are formed, and it's not the way in which most people who do investment in companies like to operate things for pretty obvious reasons. Now, I hate talking like this because it's people's jobs and their livelihoods on the line, but is this is this a kind of a silver lining of the crisis in traditional media funding, where media is no longer seen as this kind of attractive profit center for bigger corporates, and there is this potential for innovation in ownership models? I do think that when you drive out the megabucks from the business, you're left with the people who really care about it because of what it does, because of its essentially its public service, the thing it does for a community. The easiest way to manage in this situation, if you're a mega corporation or, or at least a very large group, is to make small savings, which to you don't seem like very much. But, but in the communities which lose the journalist, something breaks, something gets lost, and it's very difficult to get back. So it's really pleasing to see that in in the case of stuff, there's some innovative thinking going on. You know, if somebody came in and said, I'm just going to refocus the business and really focus on cost control, then I'd be very, very worried because we know what that looks like. It looks like sacking more journalists. If you've got somebody coming in who's saying, I think we need to sort of structure ourselves differently, that's a really good starting point. I think, you know, I'd be quite encouraged if I was working for stuff because it wasn't the same old hymn sheet which was being sung from here. I, I do think you, your point is that they're more resilient, and is that because it kind of makes profit more of a, a big profit more of a nice to have rather than an absolute imperative? There is this kind of idea that, that media cooperatives and cooperatives in general are kind of, you know, profit's a happy accident, but actually it's all about peace and love, man. It's not that a case at all. Some of the most sort of capitalistic, innovative businesses are cooperatively or employee-owned. And, you know, they very much focus on, on fantastic working experience. And a big part of that working experience, obviously, is how much do you get paid? That's why they tend to be actually really strong businesses once they get going. The hard thing for cooperatives is often to get them going in the first place. Sinead Boucher, Stuff CEO, has talked about giving workers a stake in the business. It's not clear exactly what stake that will be. I don't know whether it will necessarily be a full cooperative. If you were her... If you were in charge of stuff, you just bought it for a dollar, what would you do? I would be calling a meeting of everybody to explain what I meant by that, what I was looking to unleash, why I had said I wanted to have employees in the ownership. I might try and propose a joint working group of Sinead and the employees who who, who can help shape these ideas. They can consult with the, the employees and say, here are some of the options, which of these would be really good and which would be not so good and which ones would get your support. Whatever you decide through the right process will be a great decision. That was Dave Boyle from the UK's Community Shares Company and the author of the recent report, Good News, a Cooperative Solution to the Media Crisis, and he was talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. As we heard earlier, the current chief executive of Stuff, Sinead Boucher, is due to become the company's proprietor from this week on after handing over $1 for it to the outgoing owners in Australia, Nine Entertainment.
While Sinead Boucher was getting used to her new leadership role earlier this week, so was Nationals' new leader Todd Muller, who also ended up under severe scrutiny in interviews last Monday and Tuesday. First, he was put on the spot by TVNZ's Kristen Hall over his now-notorious MAGA hat, which is not now on display in his new office as a result. And then he was given a rough ride by TVNZ's Jack Tame and John Campbell about his criticism of the government's COVID-19 response. I've now asked you three times what your recovery plan is. So you rolled Simon Bridges. You said that your case for rolling Simon Bridges is that you arrive with an economic recovery plan that you can deliver on and that he couldn't deliver on. But every time you're asked what it is, you say small business, and then you don't say anything you're going to do for small business. But I'm asking for some specificity here. You have criticised the government with that $20 billion they've allocated over the next four years in the ongoing COVID response. You've criticised no, them for not, no, for not, not having sufficient detail. You've, just, just let me finish. You've criticised them for not having sufficient detail, but you can't even tell me if you would be spending more or less. How's that for detail? And Todd Muller and Deputy Nikki Kay were also pressed earlier this week over the Māori presence, or lack of it, in their shadow cabinet in a memorable report for TV by News Hub's Tova O'Brien. Is Paul Goldsmith actually Māori? Because he just told us, Paul Goldsmith just told us he's not Māori. He just said he's not Māori. OK, well, I'll go and talk to Paul. Thank you. So off Nikki Kay went and dug in. Hayden Donnell took a look at all that and more in this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday night. If you missed it, you can hear it on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website or the RNZ app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find it in our feed under the heading Midweek Media Watch, a tough time for Todd's new team. Today, New Zealand again has no new cases of COVID-19. It takes the combined total of confirmed and probable cases to 1,504. There are no further deaths. In News Talk ZB Sport, Blues coach Leon McDonald. Last Monday, the news of another day with no new cases of COVID-19 only just sneaked into that bulletin on News Talk ZB at 1pm before they went to the sport such as the progress that's being made controlling the spread of coronavirus so far. But earlier, in the same bulletin, there was this. If it's less than one, the disease is shrinking. The current EDR is 0.4, down from more than two at the start of the outbreak. Genetic testing also shows only one strain has been identified, which links all infected farms. Now, news of disease transmission rates and testing is also pretty familiar stuff in the bulletins these days as well, but that report was nothing to do with COVID-19. The country is on track to wipe out Mycoplasma bovis. Government and industry committed to a 10-year, $880 million eradication program two years ago. 232 farms have now been cleared of the disease and there are only 17 active properties. Joey Dwyer has more. Agriculture Minister Damien O'Connor says a sign... Earlier that day, the Agriculture Minister and the Prime Minister had both been talking up the progress in that battle against Mycoplasma bovis and their call back in 2017 to go hard and go early on that too, as Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern put it. And as with that approach to COVID-19, that call, which greenlit a huge cull of cattle and was budgeted to cost nearly $900 million over 10 years, had some pretty determined opponents. Many in the industry argued it may not work and monitoring and managing the illness was actually the best way. And some in the media were pretty convinced of that as well. Uh, good luck on this because no one else has got rid of M. Bovis in the world. But MPI, they know what they're doing. 
said no farmer ever. Farmers are devastated and say MPI has been utterly unprepared and as responsive as a dodo. TV3's Duncan Garner back in 2017 who told his listeners and viewers murdering cows won't work and he blamed the Ministry for Primary Industries for mishandling the disease. But MPI's boss Roger Smith had back at the time in an article for the media. Once Duncan Garner has taken the time to do his homework, perhaps he would like to apologise to our staff who work day and night to protect our country from unwanted pests and diseases. Now, Whether the disease is eradicated or not, tracing cattle and their movements is still crucial. Dairy farmers were given that message two years ago and it matters again right now because tomorrow is moving day, the day farmers start moving stock to new grazing pastures and new share milking contracts. And that's why this advert ran on News Talk ZB on Monday just after that encouraging news about Mycoplasma bovis. Are you a shear milker moving your herd to another farm this moving day? You'll need to update your Nate and TB free records. To do this, call the Osprey Contact Centre first on 0800 482 463. Remember, a new farm means a new Nate location number. NATE is short for National Animal Identification and Tracing, and that's the scheme that was set up as an essential biosecurity backstop back in 2012. But when Mycoplasma bova struck five years later, it became clear quickly that many farmers just weren't complying with it. Even in the year after Mycoplasma bovis eradication efforts began, the Ministry for Primary Industries said that roughly 40% of 14,500 dairy farms had not registered herds come moving day two years ago. Now, farmers who did see the need for the rules were furious with those who didn't, among them Richard Lowe, the host of the MediaWorks radio show Rural Exchange. So if you're sending animals off to graze this week, next week, and you haven't got your compliance as far as nates and, and animal health declarations done, you need your ass kicked and your animals should be taken off your damn net. Tell us what you really think, Lowy. On that show two years ago, Federated Farmers spokesperson Katie Milne told Richard Lowe it wasn't entirely farmers' fault that the system wasn't working. I think we throw away the carrot and get out the stick, don't we? Well, Richard Lowe approach. Yeah, no, no, none of that stuff in the bottom of the scrum, eh? Now, the other voice you heard there was Sarah Perriam, the producer and co-host of the Rural Exchange Show at the time. And on Media Watch later, she told us that traceability was the next big story. And everybody put their hands in the air and said, I'm not meant to be policing this. But uh, there's a lot of homework and research still to go in the media around... Uh, Nate being effective at all. Two years on, tracking and tracing the spread of illness is, of course, a major public preoccupation. Sarah Perriam now has her own daily agribusiness show called Sarah's Country in conjunction with Farmers Weekly. And last Thursday, the head of Nate, Kevin Ford, appeared on her show ahead of moving day. Kevin Ford has said that farmers can learn a lot from the recent COVID-19 emergency and how diseases can be managed more effectively through a sound traceability system. Kevin joins us now. Good evening, sir. Good evening. How are you, sir? Good. I've been looking forward to catching up with you because we've got lots to cover off. And, uh... and in an article in the latest Farmers Weekly, the head of Nate, Kevin Forward, said traceability was crucial to the post-COVID economic recovery too. He wrote that customers and markets overseas will be more discerning about the integrity of the food they're buying Lifetime traceability of animals needs to become the bedrock of New Zealand farming because, he said, the response to the next global pandemic will depend on it. 
But with COVID-19 hogging the headlines lately so much, Mycoplasma bovis has gone mostly under the radar in the news, even as farmers prepare to move their herds again this coming week. So, are the mainstream media, and indeed the rural media, on top of this important story? A question I put once again to Sarah Perriam. Oh, 100%. But with anything in news, isn't it? As soon as there's uh, no significant crucial information coming through, it naturally will fold into uh, the background. And last time we spoke two years ago, I mean, this was a huge issue. $900 million almost had been budgeted for the eradication effort over 10 years. You know, the huge numbers of animals being culled. There were questions over the the competence of people overseeing this. It was a really hot issue. Um, Some farmers even resisting inspection and testing at their properties. Um, And you said the media was sort of slow to get onto it as a story. But now there seems, as you mentioned, not so much interest. Are the rural media, though, uh, all over this? Always has continued to ensure that we hold uh, our government and our industry bodies to account. And it was our biggest uh, biosecurity incursion that we've ever experienced here in New Zealand. And uh, it really exposed uh, the holes in our NATE system. And of course, farmers not being up to speed with their compliance. So naturally, uh, it's been a great thing to showcase to our farming community the need for traceability and to up their game. The learnings that we have had from the Embovis eradication program that has been taken forward into the COVID-19 response, in particular, the communication failures that happened in Embovis and how COVID-19, they certainly took learnings from that. I interviewed Professor Sean Hendy, as many media have, and uh, Sean did say that to me, that they definitely learnt their failings there. Yet, when speaking to people such as Dr John Roach, that uh, is a Chief of Science Advisor for MPI, and and a brilliant mind at that, Uh, I said, well, why aren't we seeing some of these great communication styles like showing us the curve and uh, regularly updating us in the farming community about where Embovis is, as they have been with COVID. And so, yeah, I don't think that uh, Embovis Eradication Program has in turn learnt from COVID. Yeah, two years ago, you said to me, you know, traceability is the big issue, the next story, actually. And right right at that point, it was moving day uh, coming up and the eradication efforts had well and truly kicked off. But the non-compliance with Nate uh, that you mentioned there was huge. And one of few mainstream media reports I could find of this was um, TVNZ political reporter Benedict Collins in January uh, reporting on just one prosecution and a $150 fine. I can't quite understand why this isn't a bigger story. There's a lot in that, in that farmers certainly want to comply. Uh, The system wasn't built and it was quite clunky and had a lot of flaws in it. And so therefore extra funding and reserves went into the redevelopment of Nate. But um, a lot of this stuff could have happened a lot earlier. And Sarah, um, the rural media, I wonder, are they as affected by the COVID-19 economic dramas as the mainstream media, we've, we've heard advertising income has slumped by between 50 and 70% during the lockdown. Uh, is it different for you know quite a tightly focused sector like um, the rural media, where I guess there's a lot of specialist advertising that, that still has to go out? Certainly over level four, there was so much uncertainty with regards to the printing of newspapers, which is a very large part of rural media and uh, the government coming to play to acknowledge the fact that these weeklies were just as important to dailies. Uh, In terms of rural radio, uh, certainly they haven't experienced as much 
in terms of advertising fall as our mainstream media. Uh, however, that's likes of the country experienced the loss of radio sport, which was a massive uh, frequency reach for that media. In terms of advertising, it's there's a lot of international companies that have New Zealand bases that basically put a freeze on everything all at once. The New Zealand local agribusiness companies have certainly realised that uh, there was a more of a business as usual. However, there was just so much uncertainty and risk that there was a lot of budgets paused. However, there still is so many challenges facing the industry that it's not about just turning on the tap. Sure, and you think maybe the mainstream media is not really alive to that? They're a little out of out of sight, out of mind for our mainly kind of, you know, metropolitan mainstream media? To be critical, they always have been. And that's just the nature of the centralisation of media into Auckland. Uh, I experienced it firsthand working on the news floor at MediaWorks and certainly over my time of 18 months, um, and I've certainly seen a change and a swing up, uh, to the positive from mainstream media's appreciation of the sector. When I was thinking, uh, looking at the... Uh, the issue of the non-compliance, going back a year, uh, a story on the newsroom.co.nz website quoting uh, Federated Farmers National Vice President Andrew Hoggard, who, who was talking about how it was easy to get caught out not being compliant with uh, the NATE traceability system. He says, there's so much crap that comes through the mailbox, you don't pay attention to it all as you should. I might have kept assuming I'm registered when I'm not. That's bad news for farming publications, isn't it? Because they do go out to all farmers. And is that part of the issue that it's actually hard to cut through? So from that, in terms of print, farmers still love the tangible product and and the long, in-depth journalism that goes on in those rural newspapers and the the depth and breadth of those agricultural journalists and analysts uh, that will always be a fabric of of what we do. However, I have pivoted into an online live show broadcast across social media at prime time of 7 o'clock and the podcasted elements of that are the hugest numbers that of the whole multimedia distribution and a lot of people underestimate the technology that farmers have on their farms and have always adapted if they've seen value in it and my biggest heartening thing in 10 years of, of broadcasting in rural media has been the time that the guy, a guy said to me that he enjoys listening to my show bluetooth from his apple smartwatch to his hearing aid while drafting you <laughs> oh yeah, but I was thinking about you actually watching your program online in in video live uh, when Chris Lewis, I think it is, a, um, a Federated Farmers Dairy Rep last year when he was answering awkward questions about non-compliance, he said, look, our broadband is really rough. Uh, sometimes to do my NATE returns, I, I try and do it on the free Wi-Fi when I'm passing Hamilton Airport. That's not so good if you're trying to do a show that's online and specifically in video and going out live um, in the evenings. And I tell you what, it certainly wasn't an issue in certain places, yet my connections with some of my guests in Remuera were dodgy. So that really tells you a lot about for the farmers value technology, they will invest in it. And some of the smartest farmers have insured and invested in their own internet networks into their farms. The ones that are going to sit and wait for our large telcos to deliver it for them will always be left behind. And that's just the example of how they treat their business across their business. Sarah Perriam, host of her own daily agribusiness show, Sarah's Country, broadcast in conjunction with Farmers Weekly.
as we've heard recently here on Media Watch, it was a huge shock when huge global publisher Bauer Media suddenly announced during the first week of lockdown that it was shutting down here in New Zealand with immediate effect. It's been trying to find buyers for the country's top-selling magazine since then, but in the meantime, they've simply vanished from the shop shelves and subscribers' mailboxes, with a couple of exceptions. Earlier this month, one of Bauer's bestsellers, Woman's Day, reappeared in the same week that Bauer's local staff were allowed back into their offices in Auckland to clear their desks. But the spin-off journalist Alex Bry noted that this was actually an Australian version of that magazine, produced in Sydney, with a few New Zealand stories chucked in to make it a supposedly local edition. Former staff of the New Zealand Woman's Day told the spin-off that the local stuff in those first editions were done here before Bauer pulled the pin on the company, but there had been no indication that Bauer in Australia would be looking to use former staffers here for their Kiwi content in future. And Bauer told the spin-off in a statement it was working on plans for future local content. But the Woman's Day on shop shelves here again didn't mean that anyone here had actually got their jobs back. Now, do the readers actually care what's in the magazine? Well, having noticed that there's also an ossified version of New Idea out now as well, afternoon hosts Simon Barnett and Phil Gifford asked their listeners on News Talk ZB last Wednesday. Do you care if there's very little Kiwi content in there and you're quite prepared to pay the same kind of money? 0800 80 10 80 or you can text 9292. Well, the first up caller, Heather, certainly did care. Absolutely wouldn't bother. I just thought... You know, Women's Weekly, it had, like, real Kiwi, like, you got Kerry doing her column in it, Colin Hogg with his column. Mm, right. Um, you got Nikki Wicks and her mum, you know, with their cooking columns and stories about genuine Kiwi right. women and things that you can relate to. Mm. And she wasn't the only one. What do you reckon? Will you will you support them even though they're... No, I, I won't buy them again. I just... Um, and I really am a, a magazine addict. I always say that's my wine or beer money, actually, right. um, that I used to buy on... Um, spend on mags. But no, they're awful, actually. And like caller Chris there, Mary was missing the local voices as well. I don't like the Australian Women's Day. I bought one a fortnight ago and I thought, oh, they've... They haven't cancelled that one, so I got them. I thought, oh, where's Kate and mm. Sarah Kate Lynch and things? Yeah. And caller Thelma was even more blunt about Bower's watered-down local magazines. It's just full of a lot of crap right. stories. Yeah. And the New Zealand Week, Women's Weekly had genuine stories. And I miss Colin Hogg and Kerry's and sort of all that sort of thing. Oh, dear. Perhaps, though, the people who are texting in might be a little more enthusiastic about Bauer's new editions. Um, I will not be buying those magazines anymore. I used to love them, but it is full of Australian rubbish now, so it's an end for me. A reminder there to media doing COVID cost-cutting these days that local content is what regular readers and paying subscribers want in exchange for their money and their loyalty. On News Talk ZB last Wednesday, Phil Gifford reminded his co-host that he used to write for the New Zealand Woman's Weekly, to which Simon Barnett responded that when he was on TV back in the day, being on the cover of it was a nice and not-so-little earner from time to time for him. I was on the cover of the Woman's Day after I'd done Celebrity Treasure Island, and do you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you, do you know how much they paid for that cover? Uh, hang on, how long ago was that roughly? Oh gee, uh, what are we, 220, so I don't know, 202, 203 around there? Okay, it was a golden day still for magazines kind of, so I'm picking a large amount of money, I'm picking maybe 5,000 bucks. $10,000. You're kidding me. $10,000. Wow. What you got paid back then for it to be on the cover. 
Well, that was a story of times that will never return in magazine publishing here, you'd think. If Bower's paying no one here to make local content for their magazines, they won't be paying famous local faces to front up on the cover if there's nothing much to go with it inside. Interestingly, Simon and Phil hadn't had a single female caller on their show that day until they raised that issue of the magazines. And when they did, they also got this response from a bloke called Jeff, who saw a silver lining for him in the thinning out of magazines for women. Simon Phil, from a guy's perspective, now the women's mags are gone, supermarket, makes finding all the hunting and four-wheel drive magazines a hell of a lot easier, mate. <laughs> Regards, Jeff. <laughs> good on you, mate. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but Hayden Donnell will be back with Midweek Media Watch at about 10.30 next Wednesday night on Nights with Brian Crump. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.